0: Over the last couple of Sunday mornings, we have looked at Jesus in the garden. And then we looked last week at failures. Three different individuals. We looked at Pilate, we looked at uh, Judas, and we looked at Peter. And we see their failures. And today I want to look at what Mark has to say about the crucifixion. It's very interesting when you look at the Gospel writers as they present the, the crucifixion. They make it, or they put it in such detail, you can actually see it. And you can visualize it in your mind, and it's almost like you're there. But there's something else that's very interesting about what the writers have to say. They don't focus on the gore of the cross. In fact, you might remember years back when the Passion came out, I believe Mel Gibson was the one that worked on that. It focused a lot on the gore about how He was beaten and how the crown of thorns was placed on His head and Him hanging on the cross. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that and all that He went through, but I find it interesting that all the Gospels, they record different things about the crucifixion. And so if we can discern some of those things that happened on that day, I believe that it can help us to live better Christian lives. So this morning, I want us to look at a few verses at a time as we go through the, Mark, the 15th chapter. We're going to begin in verse 21. And we're going to read down to verse 27. It says, "...and they compelled one Simon the Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, at, or the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him into the place of Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull." And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And in the third hour, and it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And a superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on the right hand, the other on the left. And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. We read verse 28 also. Here we find that Jesus refused to be helped, and the reason was so that we could be helped by God. There are some things that Jesus had to do by Himself. He had to do it alone. There are some things that you know God could not help him with, and no one else could help him with. The fact of the matter is that if you remember in Matthew chapter twenty-six, he said in the garden, listen to what he said, and beginning in verse fifty-one of Matthew chapter twenty six, and behold one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand, and drew his sword, and struck a servant of the high priest, and smote off his ear. <clears throat> then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword in his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? We sing a song that says he could have called ten thousand angels. As I tried to find what a legion was, I found that it could be anywhere from like 6,000 to 8,000. There were various ranges that people had. I believe one started as low as 3,000. But 12 legions, some said that it could go as high as 80,000 angels. And when we look in the Old Testament, we can find where one angel did a lot of destruction to man. So imagine what 12 legions of angels could have done. And Jesus could have called them and God would have sent them to Him. But what we see here is an emphasis that has been placed on the great self-limitation of God. Jesus was limited. He limited Himself. He could have done something, but He didn't. He was willing to die for you and me. He refused to be helped. Why? So that we could be helped by God. When you look at what Mark writes... The subject in those verses are they. There's a lot of they's that are mentioned there, what they did. And the they's, if you back up a little further, you find out that there was a band of soldiers. And they'd call together a whole band of soldiers when they were dealing with Jesus. And they had spit on Him. They'd put a crown of thorns on His head. They had put the purple robe on. They'd done all of these things to make fun of Him, to humiliate Him, to intimidate Him, to try to crush Him. And I would imagine that he was very tired. But look at all those things that they did. You would look at verse 21 of Mark chapter 15. Because there it says, And they compelled one Simon the Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Jesus, on this occasion, was helped by a foreigner who just happened to be passing by and he was compelled to carry the cross of Christ. You have to remember that Jesus had gone through a great ordeal that evening, the night before, and that his body was tired, that he had no sleep, that he had been beaten, that he was mocked, that he was spit on, and that the crown of thorns had been placed on his head. Now imagine a crown of thorns placed on your head, where would you rest your head even if you had a moment to try to relax and re- regain some strength? Jesus had gone through a tremendous ordeal and His body was very tired. And if you read this, you might notice it, but it kind of seems like they're in a hurry. They want to get Jesus crucified. They want this done. And they want it done very quickly. And the reason for that... It's because the Passover was coming. They had to have it done on schedule. They had to have it done early. They had to have it done on time. And so they compelled Simon to carry his cross. And perhaps that's because they knew that if they allowed Jesus to carry it, they would kind of be behind schedule. And so they needed someone that was strong that could do it. In verse 22, listen to what he It says, and they bring Him to a place, Galgotha, which is being interpreted the place of the skull. Jesus was crucified at a place called Golgotha, which is Hebrew for skull, and Aramaic for the place of the skull, and in the Greek it is called Calvary, which means a bare skull. Now, maybe you've seen pictures of the place that they think was the location of the crucifixion. And I remember when James Barnes was here and he showed us pictures from where he went over to Jerusalem and in that area. And he had a picture of what they claimed was the place that Jesus was crucified. And if you've seen pictures, you realize it does resemble a skull. You can find two like caves that go into the, into the earth that looks like eye sockets. And then from what I read that where the nose was at, Back in, I think it was 2012, they'd had a lot of rain and that nose was washed away. But you can see the picture and you you can see that there's a resemblance of a skull. A human head. And that was 2,000 years ago and we're looking for it now or we see it now. So imagine what it may have looked like then. It may have looked even more like a skull than it does today. But what's important about that to me... Is it kind of reminds me of the very first prophecy that we see in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 concerning Christ. When Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 it says this, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, maybe there's some significance of that picture that we see that goes along with this prophecy. Maybe not. But that's what I think of when I read that and and you can see the picture in your mind. That it should remind everyone that was there of what that first prophecy was concerning Christ. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they should have recognized that. And they should have recognized a lot of other things about Jesus, but they refused to see those things. In verse 23 it goes on And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh but he received it not He had <clears> or <throat> he was offered something that would deaden the pain of the crucifixion it was a narcotic But Jesus was determined not to ward off the suffering that had been appointed for Him to endure. This was His Father's will. This was what He came to do, was to die on the cross. And He was not going to allow the pain to be deadened by taking some drug that was going to alleviate the pain and maybe the suffering and make it easier to die. He was going through this ordeal. Why? So that you and I could be saved. Verse 24, it says that when they had crucified Him, they parted His garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. Isn't that ironic? That while Jesus is dying on the cross to save souls, they're at the foot of the cross gambling for His clothing. It really kind of reminds us of people today that Jesus died for their souls, died so that they could be saved, but yet they gamble with their soul. They take the chance that, well, He's not going to come today. I'm not going to die today. I'm not going to be judged today. I don't need to worry about it today. And so I'm going to gamble. I'm going to take some time. I'm going to figure out I got, I got another year. i got another ten years. I'm not old yet. I'm not going to die. And so they gamble with their soul when Jesus died on the cross to save their soul. Verse 25, it says "And it was the third hour and they crucified Him. He was crucified the third hour of the day. That might not mean much to some, but traditionally that was one of the hours of prayer at the time of Jesus. The hour of prayer was at 3. The sixth hour and the ninth hour. So it was the third, sixth, and ninth hour. They they had a tradition or custom to pray three times a day. And again, how ironic when you think about that, in the hour of prayer is when they're crucifying Christ. Do you ever wonder about the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the, and, and, and the Sadducees and those that were present that were religious, but yet they were... Praying in that hour while they're crucifying the Son of God. How ironic the time of prayer when the Son of God is being crucified. They're doing what they're doing. Verse 26. And the superscription of his accusation was written over. The King of the Jews. How ironic. That is a truth that Jesus was the King of the Jews. But not only was he the King of the Jews, the Bible tells us that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. So he's the King of all kings, he's a ruler over everyone. And that was a true accusation that they had put over his, on His cross. Verse 27 and 28. And with Him they crucified two thieves, the one on His right hand, the other on His left. And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, and He was numbered with the transgressors. Again, how ironic. That Jesus is crucified between two two thieves. People that He had associated with. People like Him that He had associated with throughout His ministry. One of His disciples was a thief, Judas. Others that we know that were not looked upon as favorable people in society. Jesus took the time to talk to. Zacchaeus think about matthew a tax collector another follower of her of his most of the time people in that occupation weren't honest and so Jesus was there on the cross but beside him on each side were two thieves think about that and then in mark chapter 15 verse 29 through 32. It says, "...and they they that passed by railed on Him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross that He may see and believe." And they were crucified with Him Reviled him. What do we learn from that? We learned that Jesus refused to save himself so that you and I could be saved. That wonderful truth that is proclaimed in those verses by that crowd, isn't it interesting that it's announced by the crowd? We see words that are similar in Psalms chapter 22 where, where it says uh, people shook their heads, they taunted Him about the temple, and they cried out for Him to, be, to save Himself. Sometimes the Gospel comes out of the strangest places. Sometimes the strangest people, people that you wouldn't even expect to say something that, they, that is true about the Christ, here we see those that are mocking Him are stating the truth. He could save others, but Himself He wasn't going to take down from that cross. The wonderful truth is also announced by the chief priest and the scribes. Their mockery is, an in, is indicative of their inability to see the connection between what they really see and what they're willing to believe. How true that is today. Sometimes we are never so blind as when we refuse to see. You read what took place, and you wonder, how is it how is it that they don't know there's something different that's taken place here? That there's something different about the crucifixion of Christ that hasn't happened before. And I'm sure some of these individuals had seen multiple crucifixions. But there's something different, but yet, they don't want to see it. They're refusing to see it. And I'm sure that we've all run into people like that, where you show them what the Bible says, you let them read it for themselves, and they say, yeah, I know that says that, but that's not what it means. Well, they it to me then. And they, they won't explain it because they know it means exactly what it says. And so they're blind to the truth. And that's what happened here. There are people that were blind to the truth. They didn't want to admit that Jesus was the Son of God. And then verses 33 through 36... And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbatani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge filled with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink saying let alone let us see whether Elias will come and take him down He refused to be or he refused to forsake us so he was forsaken by God It seems that even nature Knew that its creator was being forsaken. Think about that darkness from noon until three o'clock in the spring of the year. That's no eclipse, as I've heard some try to say it was. I've never heard of any eclipse that's lasted three hours. And some of them old-time Gospel preachers that I've heard over the years, and I'm sure some of you have heard them too, have made statements like God couldn't stand to see His Son bearing the sins of the world, and it was God turning His back on His Son. I don't know how true that is. But think about it. Jesus seems to know He's being forsaken. And in that hour of trial, Jesus quotes Scripture. He quotes Psalms chapter 22 and verse 1. And I believe that Jesus does that for strength and perspective. The bystanders do not seem to know what's going on. They wrongly assume that Jesus is calling for Elijah. And when, he, when he's really quoting the Scripture. Again, how can this take place and you not notice that there's something different? You would think just the darkness alone would put fear in people. But it just seems like they go on. Why? Because they're blind. They don't want to see the truth. Or acknowledge the truth. And we studied a couple of weeks ago. Why? Because some were afraid that they would be put out of the synagogue if they confessed Christ. And then look at Mark chapter 15, verses 37 and 39. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple rent in twain from top to bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he he so cried out, he gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus refused to live so that you and I could believe and live forever. Jesus really died. That should wake us all up that, that when you think about it, the Son of God literally died on that cross. And with a loud voice, we hear his victory cry, which is recorded in John chapter 19 and verse 30, when it says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Those words, It is finished. It seems that even the temple recognized the significance of that because the veil of the in the temple was rent torn in half from top to the bottom. It is finished. What was finished? What God sent him here to this earth to do. He had died for our sins on a cross. We know that the rest of the story is that he's going to be laid in a tomb borrowed to him at that. And on the third day, he's going to come forth out of that grave. And so the beginning of the Gospel was accomplished here. He had died for the sins of the world. And a centurion confessed that truly this man was the Son of God. He really was the Son of God. The Gospel had begun... Jesus had died for our sins. He's going to be laid in the tomb. He's going to rise from the dead. But isn't it ironic that it wasn't a scribe that made that confession? It wasn't a Pharisee that made that confession. It wasn't the chief priest that made that confession. It wasn't some Sadducee that made that confession. It was a Roman centurion who saw all what was taking place and realized that this man, truly this man, was the Son of God. More than an innocent man died that day. And only one cross on that day mattered. I'm sure that others that were all hanging on crosses They were being crucified. Their families cared about them, but there's only one cross that mattered that day. And that's the cross that Jesus died on. God was turning a new page in the history books. The old law was going to be done away with. The new law was beginning. And we see that new law put into practice on the day of Pentecost when when Peter said... Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. Why did Peter say that? Because Jesus, before He ascended into heaven, has said, Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. My friend, if you're not a Christian today, Jesus made it possible for you to have salvation, to be reconciled back to God, to make it possible that you can call God your Father. And that you can read, and that you can live that Christian life. And so that we can have that home in heaven, that mansion that we just sang about a few minutes ago, that's been prepared for us according to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. What a blessing that is to know that Jesus has prepared a place for those who are prepared to meet Him. But think about what Jesus has done. And think about if you were there on that occasion. What would be your response? Would you be like the religious leaders at that time? Would you be like the crowd? Would you be so blind by what you wanted that you couldn't see the truth that was being presented on that occasion? Or would you be like the centurion who realized that this man truly was the Son of God? If you need to respond to the invitation this morning, you can come and have a seat up here on the front row. You have that opportunity while we stand.